you got your Bibles this morning, I pray that you do. Turn to the book of Revelations chapter 3. Revelations chapter 3. We're going to read verses 14 through 22. As we always do, I'd like to ask you to stand for the reading of God's words. If you have the means and you're able. If you need to stay seated, we understand. Revelations chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Thank you, Zach. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and here's the key, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You can be seated. At the beginning of this study, we learn from um, John, the author of this letter, we learn that he had an outline that Christ gave him And he was going to follow this outline as he wrote. In Revelation 1, verse 19, we see that the first thing that Christ wanted John to write was the things that he had seen. Namely, the, the vision of the glorified Lord and the vision of Christ walking among His churches. In chapter 1, we saw that Jesus is very present with each and every one of us right now that even though we are not able to see Him, that He is in the midst of us and that He is literally walking through His churches and He is making an inspection. The second part of the outline that we saw in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, the second part of the the outline are that um, Jesus wants John to write about the things that are. Not just the things that that you have seen, but the things that are. So in other words... Write the fact that you see the Lord walking through the churches, walking through the lampstands, if you will, the the vision that He gave Him. And then He says, now I want you to write the way that things are. I want you to write the results of the inspection that He has given as He walks through the churches. And so we have the condition of the churches in chapters 2 and 3. And so that's the second part of the outline of Revelations. And today we actually get to finish this part of the outline before we step into the third part of the outline. And the third part is that he is to write, therefore, those things that are to take place after this. 
And so we're going to see after the condition of the churches and after the church is, is gone, then what are the things that is going to take place? And so that's what we get in Revelation chapter 4 all the way through Revelation chapter 22. And so today we finish up the outline. We've already been through six of the seven churches. We, uh, we learned that the, the reason he had seven lampstands or seven churches is because he puts a, a number that represents a whole or represents completeness. And so when he looks at these seven churches, what he is doing is he is not only showing you a picture of actual churches, seven actual churches, but he is also using those seven churches and all of the, the circumstances and characteristics that it has in order to show you the completeness of all the churches. And so even today, you have characteristics of one or all of these seven churches in every church that is. And so Revelations is a book that was written to show us, as the church, the things that are and the things that need to be addressed and the things that need to change. And so it is my prayer that throughout this uh, study of all these seven churches, it is my prayer that you have left here with some kind of encouragement in your faith, with some kind of correction in your faith, with some kind of diagnosis about how your faith really is. And so today, we're going to finish up the outline with the seventh church, and it is in Laodicea. Now you might remember, just as a quick recap, we've seen the church in Ephesus that was a doctrinally sound church. It was a hard-working church, but they had left their first love, right? And ultimately we found out that that was indeed a love for Jesus Christ Himself, but it was also tied to the hip of the love for others. And so what we likely find here is that this church had gone through the honeymoon phase. The honeymoon phase was over. And now all of a sudden all the flaws of the people begin to stand out. All of the failures of other sinners begin to uh, stick out like sore thumbs. And so we have... We have this lack of long-suffering taking place. When you first come in, you didn't even notice all those things. You remember in your first relationship or in the honeymoon phase of your relationship, you didn't notice all the flaws that your loved one had. You ignored a lot of that stuff. You were very long-suffering. You were very gentle, kind, compassionate. But then what happens when the honeymoon phase is over? Who is this person I'm married to, right? I don't even know who you are. And ultimately, the only thing changed is that now all the flaws and all the failures of these sinners have come to the surface. And that what he says is the remedy for Ephesus is you need to get back to your first love. You need to go back and do the first works. You need to go back and remember how to be loving, how to be gentle, how to be kind, long-suffering, um, how to be humble, how to show mercy. You need to get back to that first love. And ultimately, that was their failure. They had everything else right, but they were falling short in that area. And I want to tell you, that's true for a lot of us a lot of times, right? A lot of times, that's what happens to us, especially in the church. And so that is something that we need to pay very close attention to so that maybe we can be corrected now um, and not have to end up where he said, if you don't fix this, I'm going to come remove your church. Maybe we won't have to hear that. The next church we saw was in Smyrna. They were a great suffering church, a church that suffered great persecution, but they stayed true to His name. And He exhorts them, listen, if you're going through persecution for your faith right now, just be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. 
And so he gives an encouraging word to that church. And then we have the church in Pergamum, who also had great suffering, but the difference there was they were living in the place where Satan's throne was. Literally, Satan lived in this city. And now, here they come in, and instead of coming out of the culture and the sins that they're supposed to be coming out of and being separate for the Lord Jesus Christ, they're beginning to compromise. They don't want to suffer. And so, in order to not suffer, they have to be a part of these trade unions. And in order to work, they have to be a part of these feasts that are to idols. And instead of coming out of that, they've decided that... I don't want to suffer, and so because I don't want to suffer, God understands if I compromise a little bit. And let me tell you something. Jesus steps on the scene and says, No, God does not understand compromise at all. If we have to endure suffering for His name's sake, it's a good thing. Then we saw the church in Thyatira, the tolerating church. They didn't want to suffer for their faith either. And so they allowed teaching in their church that would uh, allow them to be a part of everything that is ungodly and not a part of Christ. And so they were a tolerating church. So you had a compromising church, a tolerating church. And then in Sardis, they were a church that had the reputation of being alive. When the world looked at them, they had it together. But this church was actually dead according to Christ. They were asleep and they needed to wake up. And ultimately we learned this. They weren't living like the wise servants who were waiting for their master and serving him actively like he could return at any moment. But instead, they were acting like the foolish servant who was acting like my master delays his coming and so I can just sit back and live however I want to because he's not coming today anyway. And so I still have time. And so that is the church that we see in the church of Sardis, and it was a dead church because they were asleep. And then last week we learned, or the last three weeks, I'm sorry, we learned about the church in Philadelphia, the faithful church. They were a humble, small, and and felt insignificant. They had little strength, but they knew their need for God, and they kept His Word. They were doers of His Word, not just hearers. They were true to His name, they were unashamed, patiently enduring and waiting on His return at any minute, and they were only commended as being faithful. And that's the church that I pray that we can learn to be. Today, we get to look at a church that is the exact opposite of Philadelphia. Literally, we go from a church that is completely faithful and they are staying true to the Word of God. They recognize their need for God. Today, we get to a church exactly opposite. They don't even need God at all. They don't need anything. They are a church and they don't need God. And so we're fixing to look at that here in just a minute. This church in Laodicea, we don't know for certain where it got its start at. But I'm going to go through a few background, a little bit of context so that you can at least see what this letter is about, why it's written the way it is. Don't fall asleep on me during this part of it. This background is vital to you understanding this letter. All right. And so this church in Laodicea probably got its start from Paul's ministry in, in Ephesus. Acts chapter 19 verse 10 says that when Paul was three years in Ephesus that the Word of God spread all throughout Asia. Literally, that that the Word of God took off from Ephesus and just went all over Asia. And so it is likely that this is where this start come from. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, here's what we see. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, and remember he's talking to the Colossians, so Epaphras is a what? A Colossian, right? 
He is a servant of Christ Jesus. He greets you, always struggling on your behalf in His prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear Him witness that He has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Just to get a geographical location here for you or um, get a little map in your head, you had three main cities in this little place and they were each five to ten miles apart at most. You had Hierapolis, you had, um, I believe it was Laodicea next, and then you had Colossia, Colossae or however you pronounce that. And those three major cities were in a location that were about five to ten miles apart. Now it is likely that Epaphras here, who was a Colossian, heard the Word of God because he was Paul's companion after he heard the Word of God in Ephesus. It is likely that he heard the Gospel and now he goes back to Colossia and he starts the church in in there and then he goes to Hierapolis and to also Laodicea and he starts churches there as well. We get that from Colossians 4 here where it says that He has been laboring hard for you, striving for you. He has been praying hard for you so that you may stand perfect and mature and complete in Jesus Christ. And then it names all three of these cities. So it is likely that Epaphras was the one that started these churches in this place and probably started in Colossa first and then worked its way around. Colossians chapter 1 verse 7. Look at this right here. He's been talking about the grace of God and how it came to them. But then in verse 7 he says, Just as you learned it, learn what? The grace of God or the truth in Christ. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And so what we see there is that Epaphras was the one that taught them the gospel. He was a Colossian. He came from Ephesus hearing the gospel. He taught it to Colossae and now he has went around to Hierapolis and Laodicea. And all three of these cities have churches because of that. Stay with me. So in Laodicea, it is likely that they were facing the same issues that Colossae was facing, right? Alright, so let's see what some of them were. Colossians chapter 2 verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. So when Paul writes Colossians, we can tell right here that it is very likely that the same things that he's writing to Colossia about is the very same things that Laodicea is struggling with, right? You see in this verse right here, he names his struggle for both of them and his reason for writing. And then in in chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, listen to what he says here. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. And what we're seeing is that they're not walking in Christ the way that they were taught, the way that they learned. They're still walking as a church, but not in Christ. And so now walk in Him and be rooted in Him and be built up in Him. And so let's keep going in that. Verse um, 8, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. 
And then look at the first word of verse 9. What is it? Here's what he means when he says being took captive. He means for in Him or in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Ultimately what we learn is that in Colossa, it is very likely that they were rejecting the deity of Christ. They were rejecting Him as the head of the church and now they had fallen into some old ways of Judaism. They had fallen into some, um, some old law-keeping and some works-based religion. And they had fallen into some cultural beliefs. So instead of following the Word of God in the Scripture, instead of following Christ as God Himself, they have now moved into following their own heart, their own culture, their own beliefs, and now this is the path they're going, but yet they're still a Christian church. And that's a problem, right? Can you be a Christian church and not follow Christ? No. And so let's look at some of the things that they were dealing with. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 through 23. I'm just going to show you how Colossians is laid out here real quick. Colossians 2, verse 16 through 23. Listen to what it says. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And ultimately what they were doing is they were falling back into, if we're going to be religious and we're going to be godly, then we've got to follow all of these dietary laws we can't eat this, we can't drink this. If we do eat this and we do drink this, then we're sinners and we're, we're not right with God. And they don't understand that all of those things were just a shadow of showing us that Christ is coming to make us right with God. It's not about keeping a Sabbath day or keeping a feast. All of those things were a shadow of the things to come, but the fullness was in Jesus Christ. And so let's keep reading. In verse 18, he says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, which is a severe self-discipline. In other words, they were following that if I'm going to be forgiven for my sin, then I have to be punished in some way. I have to punish my body for the things that it does. He says, um, Let no one disqualify you by thinking that that's the way you get forgiveness. That's not it. Let no one disqualify you by the worship of angels. There was literally a tradition where they worshiped and prayed to angels. There are little uh, necklaces and, and ornaments found over there today that have prayers to the angel Gabriel and the angel Michael. And so there was this worship of angels that was taking place. And then going on in detail about visions, they were talking about these visions that they were having, and the Apostle Paul said, no, no, don't let no one disqualify you or fool you with this. Uh, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. There's the key. You're not holding fast to Christ. You're denying His deity and you're saying that He is not God, He is not the Son of God, and now you're following your own path for righteousness from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Let's read all the way through verse 23 so that you can see the, all of it. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. In other words, if you came to Christ, you died to all this. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to these regulations? 
do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts. Y'all with me? Human, not the Word of God, human precepts and teachings. Verse 23, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so what we see here is that denying the deity of Christ, a lot of people don't understand this. See, this is where the Mormons fall short, or just one of the ways. This is where the Jehovah's Witness fall short, one of the ways. They actually believe, the Jehovah's Witness actually believe that Jesus is Michael the archangel, that God sent in the flesh, in order to die for the sins of mankind. This falls back to a lot of this same understanding right here. But let's keep, let, let, let's keep going with this. Uh, uh, another reason, I'll get back to it in just a minute. In Psalm chapter 49, did I give you that one, Riley? In Psalm chapter 49, I think it's verse 7, seven through, uh, 6 through 7 or something like that, he actually says, Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of His life. He's been talking about the fact that we are cursed under death. And the problem is that no man can ransom another man. Listen, if you are a murderer, can another murderer pay for your crime so that you can go free? He has to pay for his own, right? And so ultimately, because we are all sinners, there is no man that can ransom or give God, there is no creation that can ransom uh, and give His life as an atonement for my sin or for your sin. But in Psalm chapter 49, I think it's verse, what did I give you next, Riley? Let's start, um, there you go, verse 14. Like sheep, they are all appointed for the grave. That's another word for the grave. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in the grave with no place to dwell. And then go to verse 15. Here's what he says about it though. But who will ransom? But God will ransom my soul from the power of the grave. He will receive me. And so ultimately, what we see from all throughout Scripture is that God has declared, I myself am going to come in the flesh, and I am going to ransom you for your sins. Jesus Christ is not a good person. He is not a good prophet. He is not an angel in the flesh. Jesus Christ is God Almighty in the flesh come to give a ransom for you and I so that we can be set free from the curse of death. This is vital because if Jesus is not God, you are still in your sins. It is vital that the Colossians and the Laodiceans and all the Christians everywhere understand that Jesus is the fullness of the deity of God in the flesh. And any religion that teaches otherwise is leading people to the gates of hell. And they don't even realize it. That's a fact, Jack. So, with that being said, the deity of Jesus Christ being denied is what leads people away from following Christ and living in Him.
That's the reason why, because they, quit, they started rejecting Jesus as God Almighty, the Savior of the world. Now they begin walking away from Christ. They're not living in Him anymore. They're not following Him anymore. And now they're just having their own self-made religion, doing what they think is right and best, and yet they're still a church. And this is what we have taking place in Laodicea. So with this context... Let's look back at Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. It's important you understand this because every time Jesus introduces Himself to these churches, He introduces Himself with the characteristics about Himself that this church needs the most. And so we see Jesus' introduction and He wants them to understand. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen. Now y'all hear it a lot. You sit in church and preacher says something or somebody says something and everybody says, Amen. What does it mean? It means this right here. It comes from an old Hebrew word and actually the word is pronounced, Amen. But it's an old Hebrew word and it is given so that we understand this is a a response to something that has been prayed or something that has been said as a praise to God, and it is absolute truth. And because we know it is absolute truth, in response to that, the Hebrews would say, Amen. And it was a final confirmation that we know that that is absolutely true. That is absolutely accurate, and I stand with it 100%. It was also used by Christ Himself when He wanted to declare that what I'm about to say is absolutely true and there is no disputing it. It is what it is and whatever I say will come to pass. And so whenever you go back and you read the words and Jesus is saying, you ever heard it say, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Or some versions say, Truly, truly, I say unto you. Do you know what that word actually is in the Hebrew? Amen, amen, I say unto you. And what Jesus was saying was this. What I'm about to tell you is absolutely, positively, indisputable truth. And it cannot be changed. It is what it is and it will be what it says it will be. And so here he comes on the scene and he tells the Laodiceans, because remember, you're fixing to find out that they would have argued with him. They would have argued with him. He would have come on the scene and said, listen, you don't know that you're poor, miserable, naked, blind, wretched. That's exactly what they would have said. They would have said, not me. No, Lord, not me. I'm good. I've got it all together. I'm in this thing 100%. I know I'm good with God. I'm religious. I I keep holy days. I I make sure that I go to church every Sunday. I I don't eat things that are unclean. I don't drink things that I'm not supposed to drink. No, I'm I'm good. I'm good. And Jesus comes on the scene. First thing He says is, y'all need to understand something. What I'm about to tell you, these are the words of the Amen. It is indisputable. It is, you cannot argue with this. This is absolute truth. And so you better listen up. The next thing he says is, these are the words of the faithful and true witnesses. Remember, Jesus is walking among the churches, right? 
He's right in the middle of it. He sees all. He has eyes of blazing fire. There is nothing outside of His sight from your life. And so when He comes in and speaks a word for you or against you, guess what? It is faithful, it is true, and He is a faithful and true witness. He's seen it. He's been in Laodicea. He knows where they're at. He knows what they do, and He knows their religion. He is the, these are the words of the Amen. These are the words of the faithful and true witness. Y'all following me? And then finally, the last part, these are the words of the beginning of God's creation. Now ultimately, what you need to understand, and I could take you back to John chapter 1, to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20-something. Uh, I could take you back and show you to where the whole issue with Colossia was the fact that they did not believe that Jesus was God. And here he comes on scene, he says, I am the beginning of God's creation. Now he's not saying that he was created by God. He's saying that everything that was made, everything that it is created, it has its being, it has its beginning from me. If you were to go back to, to um, read John chapter 1, I can't remember exactly where the verse is, but go to the Gospel of John chapter 1, you'll find it. He said, listen, nothing was made without Him. He made it. He is the creator of all things. And now He comes on the scene and He wants them to understand that you have a false doctrine that denies my deity, but you need to understand, I am the creator. Everything has its beginning from me. This word, um, this can also be uh, translated, that from which creation begins. And so depending on how you translate it, and this is one of the main scriptures where uh, faiths like Jehovah's Witness get their belief that Jesus is a created being that God sent to die for the sins of mankind. The reason they get this belief is because they take a verse like this and they say, well, there it is right there. Jesus is a created being. And that is not how it is to be translated. A more correct translation would say, he is that from which all creation begins. He is the one that gives created beings its life. And so these are the words of the Amen. These are the words of the faithful and true witness. And these are the words of the one who created everything. Now we get to the condemnation. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 15, listen to what it says I know your works. I've seen your faith in action, and I found it to be useless. That's important. That's what he's saying here. I have seen your faith in action, and I have found it to be useless. As a matter of fact, you are lukewarm, and you make me want to vomit. I know we have a translation that says that because you're neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. But that literally comes from a very strong Greek word that means to vomit out. Literally, something has made you sick and it has caused you to be nauseous and now you are ready to let loose. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. You make me sick. Your faith makes me sick. Now a little geographical information will help a lot in interpreting this. So y'all stay with me. I wish uh, I had got my pictures up there to them, but I don't, don't have them with me. <clears throat> you got three cities here, remember? Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. These three cities are all within five to ten miles from each other, but there's a problem. 
There's a big difference in their water source. And again, all this evidence is there today. You can go over there today and look at the water pipes that run that ran to Laodicea in this time. They're still there today. You can go over there to Hierapolis and here's what they had. They had hot springs, literally boiling hot springs. It is one of the most beautiful places I have ever seen in all the world. It is a little bitty mountainside cut out with little pools that look like crystal because they have been, a calcium carbonate has run over and now it is just this crystal looking pool and all these pools that sit on the edge of one another all down this little mountainside and it's all full of little hot tubs. Look it up. If you got your phone, look up Hierapolis and look at some images. The most beautiful place you've ever seen in your life. You can still go there today, people still go there today for the healing properties of the hot springs that are there. And so Hierapolis was known for its hot water and it's still there today. Colossae on the other side had springs, they were about 10 miles away. They had springs that were some of the coldest water that was ever around. And so on the one side you have this hot water that has these healing properties that everybody comes to to take part in. And on the other side, you have this, uh, this city of Colossae that, that has these cold springs and the water is so refreshing and just life-giving. And now stuck here in the middle, you have this city called Laodicea. And Laodicea has to pipe, they have to pipe their water in from five miles away. And by the time this water gets there, this water is lukewarm. It is very likely that because you could stand in Colossa and see Hierapolis literally just a few miles away, you could stand there and see the little mountainside of all the hot springs, it is very likely that that was actually their water source they were getting. And so they were piping this water in and by the time it gets to Laodicea, it is just lukewarm water. And Laodicea understood exactly what it meant for lukewarm water to make you want to just spit it out. They've lived with this cursed water. They understand that this is just nasty water and we just have to deal with it. And yet, it makes us sick. And so with all this context, Jesus comes in and He tells Laodicea, Listen, I wish that, you had, that, you, that your faith was like the water of Hierapolis over here. I wish it was hot. Now He's not saying that I wish that you were more on fire for God. That's a translation that we get a lot. And can it be applied that way? Yes, it can be. But that's not what he's trying to say. On the other side of it, he said, I wish that you were as cold as Colossae. I wish that you were either hot or cold. In other words, what he's saying is, you're, you're not useful, your faith ain't useful like having the healing properties of the water of Hierapolis. Your faith ain't useful like having the refreshingness of the water in Colossa. I wish that you were just one or the other because then at least your faith would be useful. But instead, your faith makes me sick because it's good for nothing. It is good for nothing. And so the question we have to ask is, what is lukewarm faith? I got two things. <clears throat> Here's what lukewarm faith is, and we get it from verse 17. Look what he says in verse 17. What's the first word of verse 17? Here's how you know what lukewarm faith is. Here's why it makes him sick, because this is what it is. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The key word there is, I 
need nothing. Faith that... Here's the... If you're taking notes, here's the number one. Faith that professes to be Christian, but finds its satisfaction in the world. You are satisfied with everything that this world has to offer. You profess to be Christian, but your satisfaction comes from this world. This is lukewarm faith. And Jesus said, this kind of faith makes me sick because it is useless. I wish that you were either hot or cold, but because you are neither hot nor cold, I'm fixing to vomit. These people go to church. They live as if God is okay with them. But they get this satisfaction from the world. In other words, this satisfaction that me and God are good does not come from the fact that I'm following Jesus. It does not come from the fact that I'm holding fast to the head of the church. It does not come from the fact that I'm growing in Christ and I can see the evidence of Him in my life. Their satisfaction comes from the fact that, man, things are just good. I'm rich. I'm prosperous. I need nothing. And they do not understand that you need everything. You need everything. Nothing needs to change in my life. I'm satisfied, so God's satisfied. But these people don't realize that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Here's the, key, here's the answer. Lukewarm faith is living like you need nothing. If you live every day, day after day, like you need nothing from God, like you are self-sufficient, like you are self-satisfied, like everything is exactly the way that it should be, then I'm telling you, these are the words of the Amen. Amen. These are the words of the faithful and true witness. And these are the words of the beginning of all of God's creation. And He wants you to understand that He says to you, your faith is lukewarm because you live as if you need nothing and don't realize that you're actually wretched. Poor. The opposite of this faith looks like this. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 15. Read it with me. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfected, but I press on to make it my own. He's talking about the righteousness of Christ. Because Christ has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward. What does it mean to strain? Anybody in here ever had to strain? Don't tell me about your experience. I don't really care. But straining forward to what lies ahead. And then look at verse 14. Look at the attitude. I press on. So I'm straining, I'm striving, I'm pressing. I press on toward the goal. What is the goal? Christ's likeness, right? I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then verse 15. Let those of us who are mature do what? Let those of us that are mature think this way. Think what way? i got to press on. I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I've got to keep pursuing Him. I need Him. I need to become more like Him. I'm not satisfied with this life and with where I'm at in it. It's not okay. No, I need to be more like Him and less like me. Anybody got that heart? The question is, do you live that way? Do you live that way? 
Do you hold fast to the head, chasing Him, confessing your sin, repenting your sin, going after Him with all of your heart? He says, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. And so that is the desire of the ones that know I need Him. They're not living every day as though I've got it all. Me and God are good. No, they understand they're wretched. Listen, I'm a pastor. I understand I'm wretched. I don't say that as a false humility to give me an excuse to sin and to say, well, if I fall, they knew I was a sinner. No, I'm held to a higher standard. I should, be, I should be at a higher, not necessarily a level, but I should be at a place in my walk to where I'm a little closer in my Christ-likeness than most of you are. I should be. And so I don't come up here saying I'm wretched so that I can have an excuse to now fall and get down on a level that I don't belong. I tell it to you because I really do understand it. That I'm wretched. <laughs> I'm wretched. I'm, I'm pitiable. I'm poor, blind, and sometimes naked. And yet, I know I need Him. I know I need my Savior. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. Remember the issue that was that they weren't holding fast to Christ, right? They weren't holding fast to Christ. They weren't holding fast to the head. They were denying His deity. And in Colossians chapter 1, I may not have, I may not have put that on here. Hang on. <clears throat> I didn't. Colossians chapter 3. Verses 1 through 3. So you can follow the outline of Colossians. Look what he says next. <coughs> Excuse me. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. In verse 5, Put to death, therefore, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. And so what we see here is that the issue in Colossia and the issue in Laodicea is that they're not holding fast to Christ, they're not pursuing Christ, and because of that, they're just satisfied with where they're at in their walk. And they're not doing anything. Guys, I'm not saying that if you miss a church service, then you're condemned and going to hell. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying if you don't come to Sunday school that you're, you're not going to grow in your faith. I'm not saying that. But I am telling you that there ought to be a heart in you as the church. Y'all stay with me. I mean, can I get right with you for a minute? There ought to be something in you that says, God, I need you. I need your word. I have not attained. I am not already perfected. I am not there. But I want to press on. And so teach me. Too many of us come to church Sunday after Sunday and we'll listen, but how much of it ever really gets applied? I mean, honestly. How much of us actually really change our lives by the Word that God feeds us as we believe it and put it into practice? And the answer is not many. And so I'm telling you today, that is Laodicea. 
That is Colossia, and that very well may be you. And yet you may be one that would argue with me or with the words of Jesus right now and say, not me. No, I'm good. I don't need nothing. I'm good. Me and God are good. Me and God got a good thing going on. And the words of the amen step in right now and says, I'm sorry to tell you this. You don't realize that you are wretched. You don't realize that you are poor, that you are blind, that you are naked. And you need to see this. The same thing happened to Israel. I want to read the scripture to you. Hosea chapter 13 verse 4 through 6. In Israel he said, But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they grazed, they became full. They were filled. Their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. And here's what we see. They forgot they needed a Savior. You think because I have prayed and asked Jesus in my heart that now I'm good. The Savior did not come just to leave you where you are. The Savior came, He died for your sin and rose again and gave you His Holy Spirit so that you could become a new creation in Him. And so now here we have this situation where just like the Israelites, we have gotten content and satisfied in our life. And now because of our contentness and our satisfaction and the way things are, you may not actually come out and say, I don't need anything, but the way you live day after day, you say, I need nothing. I don't need a Savior. I don't need to change. I don't need to learn. I don't need to grow. How many of you cut me off yet? Be careful. Don't hear, don't hear me as some loud preacher. Listen, it wouldn't it be a shame for the Lord Jesus to speak to us this morning and for us to just turn our head and turn our ear and go, you know, I'm not really interested. Wouldn't that be a shame? And so I'm praying this morning that the Word of God speaks to you and you hear it. Because listen, even though this church makes Christ sick, Guess what? He still loves them. And He still wants to give them the chance to repent. He wants to give them the chance to be born again. And maybe that's what some of us need here this morning. Number two, lukewarm Christianity deceives themselves. Lukewarm Christianity deceives themselves. They have their own beliefs. They have their own understanding of religion. But it's not based on God's Word, but on their own hearts and their own culture. Y'all listen to me because this is a majority of our American faith today. I believe what I believe because I think that's what's right. To me, God is. To me, God wouldn't. To me, God don't. Let me tell you something. It don't matter who God is to you. God is who He is. That's the truth of it. Lukewarm Christianity deceives themselves because they have their own beliefs, their own understanding of religion. It's not based on God's Word. In Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 9 and 10, we see this issue very quickly. It says, Thus says the Lord, Even so will I spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people, and here's the problem, here's why they're prideful. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart, and as a result of that, 
they have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them. And so what we see here is that when we follow our own hearts, our own beliefs, and we don't conform to the Word of God, y'all don't even know how big a problem this is. This is such an issue with us today. We just think that I act on my own heart, my own emotions, my own feelings, and let me tell you something. When you choose to follow your own beliefs, your own cultural experiences, your own background, it will lead you into sin and worshiping a false god every time. And here we have that taking place. They are deceived. And they're deceived because they're following their own belief system, their own heart. And this is the same thing that many of us do today. So what's the answer? The answer, go back to Revelation chapter 3, verse 18. The answer, buy gold from me. Gold that is refined by fire. He said, I counsel you to buy from me gold. Here's something you need to understand. <clears throat> Laodicea was known as a very rich banking town. In AD 60, an earthquake hit that leveled the city. And Rome offered help to rebuild all of these cities that were affected. Every city accepted it except for Laodicea. A Roman historian, Tacticus, I believe his name is, he actually wrote about this in Rome's history. And he said that when the earthquake leveled them, that Laodicea refused to accept any aid from Rome. Not because they didn't love Rome, not because they didn't worship Rome. They refused it because they took such great pride in their own riches, they said, we'll rebuild ourselves. Now let me ask y'all, we got some people in here that's pretty well off. I mean, I'm not saying you're all just rich like, the, like what you think rich is, but compared to the majority of the world, everyone in here is rich, right? How many of you are going to be able to rebuild without insurance if something destroys you? This is the kind of rich that they were. They were a banking town. And so now he comes in here and Jesus says, Listen, I counsel you to come buy gold from me. And it don't cost nothing. It's without price. Isaiah chapter 55. Come buy milk from me without money, without goods, without price. That's what it costs you. But I counsel you to quit being so satisfied in all the things of this world that you think you need nothing. Instead, come buy gold from me. I'm offering it to you. Here it is. Come buy gold from me. I'll be your Savior. It, just listen to my word. Trust me. And then you'll be rich. You'll be clothed. You won't be blind. Finish reading verse 18 with me. He says, I counsel you to buy gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. In other words, you're not rich. You think you are, but you're poor. And I counsel you to buy white garments from me so that you may be clothed. Another thing that they were known for was their black wool market. Laodicea was known for their rich black wool. And so here he comes in. He said, listen, I know you think that you're clothed well. Come buy white garments from me. Come buy white garments from me. Come get your gold from me. And then he goes on and he says next, and so that the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Another thing that Laodicea was known for was an eye ointment that they made that healed eye diseases. And so ultimately they were known for being rich, they were known for being well clothed, and they were known for having the, 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 the cure for bad eyes. And so here Jesus comes in and says, listen, you think you're rich, you think you're well-clothed, and you think you have the cure. 
I'm here to tell you that you need to come buy your gold from me, come get your clothes from me, and I've got some eye anointment for you that will actually help you to see because you're actually poor, you're actually naked, and you're actually blind. That's the context. Now you understand what he's saying. Keep going with me in verse um, 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Even the ones that make Christ sick, He holds out His hand and He says, Come to Me. Come to Me. I've got gold for you. I've got clothes for you. I've got eye ointment so that you can see. Come to Me. Quit being so dependent upon yourself like you don't need anything. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. <clears throat> A lot of people think this is an evangelistic call where He's talking to the whole world. No, He's not. He's talking to these Christians in Laodicea and any Christian that falls in this category. And He says to you, Behold, I stand at your door and I knock. I'm knocking. Y'all hear Him? I'm knocking. And then He says, If anyone hears My voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with Me. What are the requirements? Hear His voice, open the door. Hear His word, open the door. Hear His word, be zealous and repent. That word zealous means to be eager for Christ. Come in here with a heart's desire to learn from Him, to grow in Him. Be zealous, repent, hear His voice and open the door and I will come in and me and you will actually have a relationship. Because I'm taking it right here that they don't actually have a relationship that they're not actually saved. They're a church full of unsaved people. And then finally, in closing, look what he says next. <clears throat> the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. Here's my question to you. This ain't about what anybody thinks of you. This is about where you stand with God. Listen closely. Do you live as though you need nothing from God? I didn't say, do you say it? I said, do you live every day as though I'm good? I need nothing from God. Do you live that way? Do you have a holy dissatisfaction? That's what Paul had when he said, I've not yet attained, but I press on. He's saying, I am not satisfied with where I am in my holiness. If you can't say that, then this Laodicea is for us. That's the truth. Do you have a holy dissatisfaction that desires to hear His voice, that desires to seek Him, do you follow your own heart and your own emotions? Or do you listen for His Word to follow Him? The command is to be zealous and repent. The command is to hear His voice and open the door. And when you do that, He promises, I will come in. And these are the words of the Amen. And if He says, I will come in, He will. But it's up to you to hear the voice and open the door. Or, because this whole thing is about pride. Y'all understand that, right? Amen. This whole thing is about pride. 
Or I can say, I'm not interested. I'm good. I'm good right where I am. And one day you're going to find out you weren't. You made him sick. I ain't mad at you this morning. Y'all know that, right? I'm not. No, Jesus said, those whom I love, I rebuke. <laughs> now again, this don't mean they're saved because for God so loved what? And so this don't mean that they're His. This don't mean they're saved. But He said, those whom I love, I rebuke. I'm trying to give you the opportunity to humble yourself before me and, go, and follow Him. I pray you listen to Him. <laughs>